From the Upper Mount Samiesville Studios in Samiesville, Pennsylvania, comes the We Talk Games interview. Welcome to Interview Starcade, the breakout We Talk Games guest boy featuring some of our favorite interviews from WeTalkGames.com. Joining me online is Kyle Von Kubik. Hello. I'm your other host, Wiggly. And this is the show. Yes, it is. This is where we feature interviews from our monthly We Talk Games Video Power Monthly Audio Magazine that you can get to at WeTalkGames.com. Hey, our name is our address. It's simple. <laughs> it definitely is simple. <laughs> yes. So we started Interview Starcade to yank out the monthly interviews we do on our We Talk Games program. Let's be honest. It's just us showboating twice a week. <laughs> or twice a month, I should say. No. Well, maybe, but... I got to tell you, I'm amazed at the fantastic guests that we get on the show each month. So am I. And I mean, we're always excited to have a special guest from the industry on. But there is only a couple moments in me wrangling these guests uh, and having them on the show that I can remember where you were floored, I guess, that we actually were able to get them. Definitely. And our guest on today's episode was most likely the person I thought would have absolutely no interest to come on a show. And then we ended up going about an hour, I think. Oh, so giving with the interview. I mean, just was willing to dive into everything. And I don't even think we touched on everything. There's a lot of guests where, you know, in the future, we might want to have back on because there's just so much history with them. That it's almost impossible. You'd have to dedicate uh, six hours to that one guest. I can think of about a dozen where I could have gone on and on and on. But this guest was Trip Hawkins. Now, I don't think there's any other guest that we've had on the show that has had such a longevity of contributing to the entire video game happening as much as Trip Hawkins. He was, of course, involved with starting the biggest franchise in the United States, Electronic Arts. Yes. Then went on to start the 3DO company, which unfortunately didn't fare so well, but it added so much new technology, so much new direction to the video game. And now, of course, he's with Digital Chocolate, which is doing some really fun things to embrace the minute on your portable gaming devices. And I'm going to sing his accolades once again very shortly at the opening of this interview. A lot of history with Trip. He founded one of the biggest third-party developers of all time. We all know it. And it seemed almost impossible. You know, with a lot of these top-tier guys, there's language barriers like, uh, you know, Shigeru Miyamoto. But on the other side, there's guys that you just don't think are touchable. And Trip is definitely uh, among that group. And just dumb luck, I guessed his email for his company, (laughs) and I was able to get him. Uh, And this is another situation. This happened uh, once before. I contact the person. They come on the show. They're very giving. We have a great interview. And then two days later, I get an email from their PR person informing me that they're very sorry, but so-and-so is too busy to be on our show. (laughs) Yeah, the other time that happened was, of course, with Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. Yes, yes. It's hilarious. 
So, but yeah, trip was great. Oh, he was. And let's hear it right now. So, uh, Keith, open the line. Let me uh, pop a lozenge in here. Open the line, Trip Hawkins. This is going to be amazing. San Mateo, California. Trip Hawkins. Welcome to We Talk Politics. Now, Trip. All right, hopefully not real politics. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, now, Trip, you built one of the most successful, if not the most successful, American video game brands of all time. You created an entire gaming system with the serious gamer in mind that could also lend itself to the casual gamer. And the it just does it all type of mentality nearly 17 years before the ps3 would launch its just does it all campaign and then you preceded the iapp explosion by about six years by founding a company whose main focus was mobile dlc and a lot is known of your success your achievements in the realm of video games and video gaming. But Don't forget I've, my failures. They're really well known. <laughs> well, yeah, well, of course, people always want to, you know, get something to jab you when you're doing too, <laughs> when you're too high. They want to jab you down a little bit. Uh, we've heard a lot about this stuff. This is all quite public, but I've rarely heard about you personally. Like, how did you come to video games? Why video games? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I uh, figured out from playing board games that I was just, noticing that I was much more stimulated and alive and involved and engaged when I was uh, playing games. And I particularly liked uh, board games where you could have a really compelling fantasy or simulate something enjoyable from real life, like a sport that you loved. So I started uh, focusing on that type of uh, game and kind of fell in love with uh, one particular tabletop sports simulation brand called Stratomatic. And that just kind of really got me going and got my imagination going about wanting to design my own games. So I started designing games when I was a teenager and, of course, was designing uh, pre-computer games. So these were games that used dice and cards and charts and, you know, relied on the probabilities of different things happening. Right, right. And I found that it was hard to get friends to play with me because it was too much work. Yeah. And then I saw my first computer, and I, and I thought, aha, we'll, we'll make the computer do the work. And I committed myself to learning about how to do that with computers, and that's kind of uh, where it went. Wow. And you had training in colleges or school? Well, you know, um, when I got to college, I already kind of had this career in mind. So I basically spent a couple of years uh, convincing my college that they ought to let me study uh, how to make video games. And that was a very hard sell at the time. Mm. They they didn't think of that as a serious uh, academic pursuit. I've actually been really delighted since then in seeing how many universities have specific curriculum for the game industry. I think that's just a spectacular development. It acknowledges that mainstream society takes what we gamers do and care about seriously. And and then a couple years ago, one of my uh, mentors from college won the Nobel Prize for his work on game theory. So I'm, I'm really feeling kind of validated that what we all do with games is uh, recognized now as, as being a serious field of endeavor. Right, right. And you were just inducted recently, I guess, into uh, a Hall of Fame of sorts. Yeah, that was a, that was a couple of years ago, but uh, yeah, that was, that was quite an honor. Uh, you know, obviously, I guess if you uh, spend 30, 40 years uh, doing the same thing, sometimes you, you get a chance to see those accomplishments pile up a little bit. Well, right next to the heads of Sega and the heads of Nintendo and the heads of Squaresoft, that's a pretty lofty uh, group of companions there. 
Well, you know what? Uh, of course, I, I know a lot of those guys. And, in fact, uh, the first guy that, that was elected was Miyamoto's son. And, of course, uh, he was absolutely the most deserving first person to be honored in that fashion. And I was fortunate enough to uh, be the uh, master of ceremonies uh, at that first event and got to congratulate him and introduce him for uh, uh, winning that award. So I really appreciate the fact that that particular institution and that particular award is really more focused on uh, creativity and design work. And obviously, I'm, I'm kind of known for some of my business accomplishments, but I, I personally have always been the most interested in the creative opportunities for me in the industry and, and what I've been able to do to in, in the way of expressing myself creatively. Right on, right on. And that was the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences. So that's great. And they only have one uh, inductee per year, so good stuff there. Now, how did you turn your love, your passion for gaming, your want to uh, you know, make these things happen on a screen? A uh, good thing you weren't just in, enamored with Pokino or something like that, or don't break the camel's back. I guess that wouldn't have been in your college days. But you were more involved with these strategy charts and 18-sided die and things like this. So how did you turn that passion into a business? Well, the way I think about business is that if you're going to start something new, obviously you have to be innovating and breaking some new ground, but you should look for reference points from existing businesses. And before I founded Electronic Arts, I, I spent about a decade thinking about how to found Electronic Arts. So it was basically 10 years uh, in the making. Mm. And all, the, all that time over that course of 10 years, I was figuring out the foundational principles and uh, what it would have to have going for it. And, you know, new businesses have a high fatality rate. You know, a lot of them don't make it. Sure. I was convinced that I had to have a really big idea that made a lot of sense. And then I would have to have some other supporting elements that would really give the business an opportunity. So I figured out from the work I was doing in my early career that software development could really be thought of as an art form and that the process of developing it and managing developers could be managed like artists doing creative work. And that's where I realized that I could use Hollywood as a reference point because Hollywood, of course, has a lot of experience managing uh, different kinds of creative talent and helping bring their products to market and uh, commercializing them. So that led to kind of the fundamental underlying ideas about the strategy for electronic cards having to do with basically looking at how Hollywood companies manage creative talent, uh, how, how they manage the development process, and how to kind of integrate some of those ideas into what I already knew about software development and how to manage engineers. And then also looking at marketing and channels of distribution and, and drawing principles from that. Wow, so did you treat it like maybe an animation studio from Hollywood, or what exactly did you pull from the well, Hollywood? You know, ironically, uh, back at that time, games were developed usually by a teenager living at home with his parents on an Apple II. <laughs> right. And so the, the reference really was more to... Uh, an individual uh, recording artist, uh, you know, with a guitar and a tape recorder, and you know, try to figure out, hey, uh, how do you help that individual in the same way that, a, say, a book publisher would help uh, an author writing a book or a music company would help young talent like a Richie Valens who uh, recorded La Bamba mm -hmm. and you know, other hit songs. And that sort of led me to the idea of, well, hey, uh, uh, these recording artists, they get to go to a music studio, which has a lot of tools in it, and you know professional support so why, why don't we do that in my company and then of course uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, distribution principles that got adopted in, including 
working directly with retailers so that you have that relationship and you you're one step closer to the consumer and get better feedback both from the consumer and from the retailer about what's working or what isn't working and you have a chance to get more products on the shelf that way mm-hmm. and then you can go back to the artists and say to them hey I'm going to do a better job supporting you because I've got better tools and technology to offer you and I'm going to get you get your product more global distribution and it turned out those were really great principles to apply to game development my first experience with electronic arts had to be on the Genesis and some of the early titles there like Budokan and uh, Ishido and Zany Golf. Did Electronic Arts develop for the computer first or for the Genesis? What was the timing period on this stuff? Yeah, so I founded the company in 1982. At that point, okay. Atari was uh, cresting the top of the hill with the Atari 2600 which was a extremely limited uh, console system that literally had 128 bytes of memory. Right, right. I did not say 128K, <laughs> I just said 128. Yes. And that, that system could handle, I think, five or six sprites, which is not very many. It had a handful of colors. Uh, you really could not do much more than Pong. And in fact, that system was within a year of the public basically thumbing their nose at it and saying, yeah, we're burned out on this. So that, so that system was really kind of a hula hoop. It was very one-dimensional. And the public kind of caught on to how limited it was when more advanced arcade games like Pac-Man really couldn't be as good in the home as they had been in the arcades. Mm-hmm. Of course, in those days, an arcade system was, was probably a $5,000 computer with a lot more uh, capability. So in, in that time frame, it didn't make sense to, to me to try to make cartridges for the Atari. The manufacturing cost was really high. Atari didn't really even offer a third-party licensing program. They had sued Activision, the first third-party publisher, they weren't really cooperative towards that end. Uh, the machines seemed to be very, very limited. I, I thought Activision was going to have a very limited horizon on that platform, and that turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought the next wave was going to be home computers. So we initially supported products like the Apple II and then migrated to lower-priced products like the Commodore 64 and then jumped on 16-bit computers, including the Commodore Amiga and the uh, PC when that came out. You know, the PC came out in the uh, early 1980s, and the PC clone market was really kind of kicking into gear by the mid-1980s. So you mentioned the Sega Genesis. What was interesting about that, it, you know, it came out in the United States in 1989, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I was extremely excited about the Sega Genesis because we had done so much work with the Motorola MC68000 16-bit processor, and we'd had it in our development systems, and we'd had it in the Amiga, and the Atari ST, and the Mac, and of course it had also been used in a lot of the uh, arcade systems, and we had uh, brought coin-up titles, including Marble Madness, from a 68000 code base in an arcade system. We'd brought that over to the Amiga. And here's the Sega Genesis at a $189 retail price with a 68,000 processor in it. And it came with uh, two joysticks, and you could have a much more casual, simple, plug-and-play game experience with a friend and have the power of uh, 16-bit computing. And we were just all over it like a cheap suit. (laughs) Now, I I noticed that you you had mentioned about dealing directly with the end merchants and things like this uh, and that really comes to play I think even in the the box style of the early Genesis cartridges you had your own boxes as compared to the standard Genesis box 
when I founded the company, I, I actually wanted to make packaging like record albums, and we did that, and we featured the creative talent, the artists that had made the games, and that was a lot of fun, and you know, that was actually widely copied throughout the industry. There were, I think, 20, 21 or 22 other companies that exactly copied that style of packaging that we uh, uh, invented. It was kind of a customized album cover. But the problem was once enough products got onto the shelves, the retail would start to take the facing of that album and turn it sideways, which is called spine out. Yep. And then it would basically make the beautiful cover art disappear, and then you'd be left to having to read what information is on the spine. And it was so thin that it just made the product disappear. And that's that's why uh, we moved to boxes. And in the case of the Sega Genesis, uh, we had basically reverse engineered the platform and figured out for ourselves how to build a software toolkit and make Sega Genesis compatible games without any assistance from Sega. Is that why some of the early titles will only work in those high-definition graphics 16-bit systems, the specific Genesis systems? Well, all of our games worked on all of the Sega Genesis systems. But, of course, they had to be packaged separately from, you know, so, for example, if you made a game like uh, Populous, mm-hmm. you'd have the Commodore Amiga version, and we had a Sega Genesis version, and we had an IBM PC version, etc. It's just that, obviously, the Sega Genesis, the game had to be packaged in a cartridge because the Sega Genesis did not have a disk drive, mm-hmm. and you had to separately manufacture the little chips, uh, the ROM chips that the program code would be recorded onto, and... We got those manufactured in Taiwan and assemble our own uh, boxes, et cetera. And we were ready to come to market, actually, without a license from Sega. And it, uh, towards the 11th hour, I started a conversation with Sega and just said, look, uh, w- why don't we work out a license agreement and be partners? But we were not willing to go into the more typical standard license agreement because, you know, we, we didn't feel like we needed to turn over control of our business to Sega for the sake of whatever those benefits might be. Sure. So that's why we had unique and different uh, packaging. Okay. In fact, the initial packaging we make, it, it did not even mention the word Sega. It just said, <laughs> it kind of hinted that, hey, this is a 16-bit game cartridge, and we were trying to make sure that we didn't do anything that Sega would accuse us of a trademark infringement since we didn't have a license. Gotcha. And, of course, once we worked out a deal with them, which was very beneficial to uh, both companies, I think. But sure. it certainly saved EA a tremendous amount of money. Then we could start you know, using their trademarks in our marketing efforts. Yeah, I, I don't think without EA, I don't think the Genesis would have become the, the, the super system at that time, you know, synonymous with well, the know, video in, games. In Sega's defense, I mean, they were a couple of years ahead of Nintendo, and that was a period of a certain amount of complacency on Nintendo's part. They were really milking the dominant position they'd had with their 8-bit system and Mm -hmm. maybe not as clear on the fact that a lot of customers were ready to move on to something more powerful. And then we were able to introduce new genres of product at the 16-bit level, like EA Sports, Mm -hmm. that just hadn't really been a significant part of the 8-bit console landscape. So I think a lot of the 8-bit customer base was uh, younger, and they weren't looking for products as sophisticated like team sports or serious simulation games, serious strategy games. And we, you know, we were able to bring uh, a lot of good stuff to the table because we had spent several years building 16-bit computer games that adapted to the Sega Genesis quite easily. So that definitely that accelerated the two-year lead that the Sega Genesis ended up having over Nintendo. But I wouldn't underestimate the importance of them having a two-year lead. But they also crushed the PC Engine, the Turbo Graphics. 
Yeah, that product was uh, not a very good system. It was, you know, they called it 16-bit, but it was closer to being an 8-bit system. Yeah, it was uh, just a 16-bit graphics processor on top of uh, 8-bit. Well, particularly in a system of that nature, uh, things like the, the bandwidth of the memory bus is going to end up being more important than the bit length of instructions being handled by the CPU chip. I own uh, the Madden, though. That was was one of the death pangs of the uh, Turbo CD, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, what were some of your favorite titles at EA? Did you get to really get your hands in this? How much did your role change over time at EA? Well, I, I kind of did everything at one time or another. People ask me my job description, and I always say that I do whatever is I can't get somebody else to do. And the passion for me was uh, always around the sports games. So I was extremely heavily involved in driving and leading the development of the sports game business, and that includes many of the sports that we covered. Of course, I'm, I'm known for having designed and produced Madden football. I also designed and produced the uh, Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one game. Sure. That segued into, after Julie Zervi retired, we put in a guy named Michael Jordan to replace him. Yeah. Uh, so those, those were a couple of the linchpin uh, early products that I was very, very heavily involved in. But I was also uh, very heavily involved in uh, our golf products and baseball products and quite a few other categories of sports. The Madden project was interesting because it was the first version of it was uh, much longer in development than anybody thought it was going to be and became known around the company as Trips Folly and probably never would have come out if I hadn't been so personally interested in it and just kept working on it and, and pushing on it. It's just that football turned out to be a very, very challenging sport to simulate. Sure. Beyond the sports products, of course, in the very beginning, I created the uh, artist management function and ran it myself and hired and created the role of producer in the game industry and sort of hired and trained and supervised all of the producers uh, and made a lot of the early product deals. So when you, when you look at products like Archon or Mule, those were created by artists that I personally pursued, that I personally signed a contract. Same thing with Bill Budge with uh, Pinball Construction Set. And I was very intimately involved in those uh, artist relationships and the design of uh, those products and the, the marketing and bringing them to market. It's a lot of fun looking back on uh, some of those products because some of these artists are just the nicest people and it's definitely among my best career memories having the opportunity to work with uh, people like Danny Bunton and Bill Budge and Ann Westfall and John Freeman who created Archon and Archon 2 mm-hmm. and other games. Uh, I, I was uh, even deeper in, with my hands in the clay on Mule because basically I had played a uh, much older business simulation game that Bunton had done for SSI, and I'd actually been on the board of directors at SSI in the early 80s. And I basically wanted to make a uh, more video game-oriented business simulation. So I basically came up with the specifications for the game, and they invented the storyline and the theme around Mule. And then I wanted to include all the fundamental principles of economics. So I had to explain those principles uh, to the development team and, and then stay on top of the project to make sure that they were being delivered correctly. And I'm talking about things like the learning curve theory of production and economies of scale and various <laughs> other principles like supply and demand and uh, what happens when you create a monopoly and you know, various, various other things that are all built into that game. And to this day, Mule is one of my favorite memories of the game. I wrote the manual for the game even. It's a heck of a great way to learn economics. 
Olympics just to play that game. Yeah, I have to bust that out again. I know I have that on the wall there. It's amazing, uh, just looking back on that early library, uh, just how diverse and how many great titles are in there. You know what I think a lot of people don't remember, or maybe they never knew it, about EA is that, uh, you know, in the very beginning, because of the founding principles that I had come up with, I really wanted to invent a lot of new stuff and bring a lot of new stuff to market. So there was a tremendous amount of innovation and original thinking and and developing new game genres and new brands in the first 10 years of the company. And, of course, a lot of them became uh, defining products of various uh, genres. Mm-hmm. So you look at something yeah. like pinball construction set, the idea of a construction set, that became a genre. Certainly EA Sports is a good example. I would say Populous is another example where you, know, you get into the idea of God games. Definitely. Yeah, there are just numerous examples like that where we kind of blazed new trails and created new categories for the industry that are still around today. Later on in that process, of course, uh, you know, we learned from uh, how we, how we were able to develop the EA Sports business, how to leverage brand licenses. In later years, after EA built up a lot of distribution power and a lot of uh, technology to leverage. Then it became practical for the company to go out and be the high bidder for big licenses like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and get the NFL exclusive and do more things of that nature. But there really was not much much of that going on in the first 10 years. Right. So it, it had to rely on uh, on other strengths and other innovations. Were you still at EA during Thrill Kill? Now I'm trying to gather some of those developers up because by today's standards that's like nothing. But of course it got the kibosh then. So well, I mean, you know, I'll tell you this: uh, I'm, I do not believe in media censorship. I think it's both impractical and a violation of the Constitution. Mm. I'm a parent. I have four children. I think it's extremely important for parents to govern closely what media their children consume. And it's important for industries to be very honest with the public, particularly parents, Mm. about what's in the media. I actually started sponsoring a 3DO product rating system before the ESRB came into existence. Okay. And something you may not be aware of is that I invented the E rating. Oh, wow. It was a 3DO trademark, (laughs) and it was my idea to call it the E, E for everyone. Yeah. And later on, that trademark was sold to the ESRB. I see. Oh, wow. I'm a big fan of having rating systems. I actually uh, am critical of the ESRB because I think there are some extremely arbitrary and wrongheaded views and outcomes in how they uh, rate things. So I think sometimes they give somebody an E that shouldn't be an E, and sometimes they'll give it a T when it should have been an E. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the presence of a rating system, that's a really important thing to have. Uh, it's better if the industry does it for itself than, yeah. than having it be sort of imposed government regulation. And then hopefully uh, they'll let the buyer beware and the buyer uh, knows what they're going to get. So I don't, I don't have any moral opposition to sophisticated adult content. Mm-hmm. Although, um, you know, generally it's not really my, you know, I, I personally have no interest in being involved in making products that are offensive. Well, for the main purpose of being offensive, sure. But if it's yeah, you know, I, 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 um, I that's kind of where I draw the line. I don't mind making a product that appeals to one segment of users, but not another segment. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, I don't really personally have much of an interest in making things that are just flat out offensive. Right, right. But for example, I don't I don't consider blood in and of itself offensive. I, I just I think that it can be handled uh, tastefully. I think it can be handled uh, realistically, and I certainly uh, enjoy movies like Inglorious Bastards, and I find games like Mortal Kombat amusing. I think I think Mortal Kombat is a comedy. I mean, it's it like slapstick. It's silly. Right? Yes. So I, I really disagree with the politicians like Joe Lieberman that have come along and mm. said, said that if you play this game, it's going to make your child want to rip someone's spine out. <laughs> I don't buy that for a minute. No. And, and you know, it, it's it's silly. There There is so many levels of silliness I'm sure you've had to put up with through the years. But yeah, self-regulation, I think that's that's always the way to go. Uh, and then if, if people feel that something's not regulated properly, they'll let the companies know about it with their dollar. Well, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, one of the first EA games was called Hard Hat Mac. And it was a platform game in which this guy's trying to build a construction project. And one of the bad guys, one of the enemies, if this enemy touched you, you would lose a life, was the OSHA inspector. (laughs) And in fact, it was a faithful treatment of... The fact that, hey, this is one of the government compliance things that is involved in construction. Mm. In my opinion, it was humorous, it was tasteful, and it was accurate. Definitely. Well, a local politician here on the peninsula decided that it would actually help them get reelected if they picked on this game about criticizing a government agency and making it sound like it was something horrible uh, to uh, make children have a bad image of a government agency. Yes. Now, I'm sure most children wouldn't even know what the heck it is. No. And Not until they have to start working in the factory. They got a news story uh, written about their criticism of this Hard at Mac video game. And, and then the media started calling around uh, local retailers saying, uh, you're not caring, you know, surely you're not offering this hideous game to the public, are you? <laughs> and really, it was just, it was like a witch hunt uh-huh. without without any basis in fact. Wow. It really taught me a lesson because the story got syndicated and picked up by 30 national major <laughs> metropolitan newspapers. It became a really big story. A lot of retailers banned this game. Oh, my goodness. It did not deserve to be banned at all. I mean, if you saw it right now, you'd think you got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the other funny thing is that then out of the woodwork, I got all this fan mail from American citizens around the country that cannot stand OSHA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got I, t-shirts, I, dealt with OSHA. I got books, I got humorous stories, I got all kinds of, of uh, heartfelt tales about people's frustration with OSHA. Mm, unbelievable. About when did you get out of EA and decide to start the 3DO company? First of all, there's an overlap between the two companies. So I, I was very oh, okay. involved in EA for about 12 years. And towards the end of that period, 3DO got started as a skunk works within EA because I was just looking at the industry situation and realizing that the hardware platforms were not progressing the way they needed to for there to be a good growth opportunity for the game developers. Mm -hmm. And I also recognized that the uh, most respected software companies like Microsoft, like Sega, like Nintendo, they all were great software companies, but they also had their hand in the platform side. Sure. So it did not seem crazy to me to have EA try to get more actively involved in breaking this logjam and getting the hardware to move forward. And I I wanted to push agendas like 3D graphics and optical disc media and networking. And, you know, at the time, it seemed like a practical thing for uh, the company to do. But, you know, as it kind of picked up speed and and momentum, I think there was a lot of sentiment uh, in the company that it would be something better served if it was in a separate company. I see. So it got spun out as a separate company that became uh, 3DO. And and 
you know, I think in hindsight, certainly it really helped EA that it got done. First of all, EA ended up making a huge amount of money from the stock in 3DO that they had that they sold. But what I think is even more important is that when companies like Sega and Sony came calling on EA and said, hey, EA, we want you to make a bunch of games for the PlayStation, EA basically said say to them, well, you know, we're partners with 3DO. We own equity in 3DO. We have a really fabulous deal with 3DO. We don't have to pay very much as license fees with 3DO. We never paid a lot with license fees with the Sega Genesis. Mm-hmm. If you want our support, you're going to have to do something similar for us. Gotcha. So there was a period of, t- of several years there where there's no question that EA was able to get much, much better terms. So they had much more leverage to get better terms than anybody else in the industry. And since EA had been kind of a kingmaker helping make certain platforms be successful, I think when Sony came along, and Sony didn't have the kind of first-party game development that Nintendo and Sega were known for. Mm-hmm. So for Sony to enter the market, they really, I think, felt like they had to have EA as a partner and of course this created uh, some competitive conflict between 3DO and EA and ultimately uh, that led to 3DO needing to be more responsible for solving its own first party game software problem because I think as you recognize with a game platform you have to have some unique first party games that are only available on your platform in order to show people what your platform does and to distinguish it right definitely and it obviously wasn't going to distinguish 3DO if 3DO had Madden, but then PlayStation had Madden. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like the first sign that in the long run this is not going to work out very well. But uh, in the end, uh, it's kind of an interesting story about two very large Japanese companies because I recruited many hardware companies to work with 3DO and to support 3DO. One of the ones that I think was interested that slipped through my fingers was Sony. Hmm. And the one that I created the most interest with was Matsushita. And these are companies that are very traditional rivals. And uh, ironically, at that point in time, Matsushita was hot and Sony was not. Okay. Sony had lost in the Betamax versus VHS video standards war with Matsushita. Sony was struggling with some of their other operating businesses and... Uh, and including the Hollywood companies they had acquired, like TriStar Pictures. Matsushita, on the other hand, was kind of at a peak where uh, their business was very strong, and they had made a successful acquisition of Universal Studios, and that was going really well. So Matsushita looked like the kind of entertainment conglomerate that could really be an exciting partner to have in the video game business. But frankly, uh, over a period of a few years, it became clear that Matsushita was really culturally a consumer electronics hardware company, and they never really adapted to what uh, requirements you have in the game industry, and they just weren't confident putting down a big enough bet, uh, whereas Sony came in and basically put $2 billion on the table and said, hey, we're going to go execute and do just about everything we can, as comprehensively as we can, as well as we can, and we're going to bet very heavily. Mm-hmm. And it, it just tilted the table very quickly so that a lot of the software companies, uh, EA included, believed that they had to be on the PlayStation. I see. And were you aware of the talks between Nintendo and Sony for... Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, look, okay. I was uh, kind of in the back. All these companies are talking to each other all the time. And, sure. and in fact, at 3DO, we convinced Apple and IBM to work together to make a, a processor chip for us. Okay. And we helped architect it. Because, in fact, a 3DO employee had been the architect of the PowerPC, the processor that had been used by Apple mm-hmm. and made by IBM. Sure. And lo and behold, that processor family later on shows up in Nintendo products. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Right, and the game Matusha was the leading manufacturer of optical disc drives. So naturally, we knew they were in conversations with Nintendo about optical yeah. disc drives, and sure enough, later on, uh, that happened. And we were having contact with all of these companies all the time. And so there were a lot of formative things going on at that point, including the formation of DVD, because, you know, 3DO was a pioneer in uh, digital video, and we were among the world leaders in video encode, decode technology as well. But, you know, clearly we were one of the first people to discover that you just could not do a movie on CD-ROM. You had to have a higher capacity optical disc, and it had to have a higher data transfer rate. We're sort of on the uh, bleeding edge of the R&D around this, and you know we're helping explain this to companies like Matsushita and Toshiba. And sure enough, they're the ones that ended up agreeing on the DVD standard. I see. And of course, that came along later. So out of the ashes of 3DO, I mean, again, 3DO, you, you could just say that it was a noble idea that was just too far ahead of its time, you know, and, and it suffered from cost problems because we're using technologies that weren't quite cheap enough yet, and it didn't have a enough money behind it the way uh, the PlayStation did. And the PlayStation came along a couple of years later when mm-hmm. some critical component costs had come down. They had the advantage of more advanced custom components, and Sony made a really big bet. Matsushita got scared of what Sony was doing, decided to back off. And again, it just kind of tilted the table in that direction. But a lot of the R&D and a lot of the market initiatives that 3DO set out to do, they became baked into what the industry did. In fact, uh, I've had executives from Sony tell me that they were liberally copying 3DO's business practices and copying our licensing program and, you know, in lots of detail. And then what you see coming out of it later on is uh, standards like DVD that became a big success. and. We even pioneered and built one of the first video-on-demand digital network systems, and, of course, that became common and popular later. We had uh, Noah Falstein on the show, and uh, he he had mentioned about the network capabilities of the 3DO, which was something I wasn't. I, mean, I was well aware of the VCD capabilities. I I bought the VCD uh, plug-in for my 3DO, my Panasonic, and uh, I own legit legal <laughs> VCDs and everything else. And I've always loved the system. It's been one of my favorite systems throughout time, uh, probably because you know if you invest seven hundred dollars, you you want to like it, uh, as well as the fantastic Fantastic games that came out for it, no doubt about it. I mean, I have to, I have to correct you on one thing. You okay. didn't pay seven hundred dollars because I, yeah, this is one of the myths about three D. Is everybody picks on the launch price of seven hundred dollars? The effective launch price was six hundred dollars. At six hundred dollars, that's exactly so what there, I paid. There was a published list price, but nobody went by the published list price. I mean, the, the everyday price from the beginning was five ninety nine. That's still too much. <laughs> but it's just it's just amusing how people and you know the the media wants to insist on getting the facts wrong about that. Mm. But, you know, whether it was 600 or 700 doesn't really matter. It was too high. Well, I'll never forget the day when my, my girlfriend at the time came home and she had both the, the CDI and the 3DO uh, under each arm. So that wow. was that was That's quite... one hell of a girlfriend. <laughs> we all need girlfriends like that. And and so that's that was definitely like somewhere around a $1,200 investment, no doubt about it. And I would my jaw hit the floor. But I had a good time and I played Crash and Burn for, I don't know, five or six months. And Noah was on there and we, you know, chuckled about the launch, which didn't have as much software support as I'm sure you would have liked. Uh, Shelly devolves it to bird to life and crash and burn. <laughs> but I'll tell you, once... Yeah, it was pretty terrible, and, and obviously uh, we, we have to take the blame for not understanding how long it was going to take for really good games to be built for the platform and not doing enough ourselves. You know, again, we were pretty much relying on the third parties, and mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's really clear about video game consoles is that you've got to have a serious first-party effort, and you have to be the one who establishes the value of the platform. We just did not do that. Obviously, uh, within a year of that launch, you're looking at products like Road Rash, which was a heck of a lot mm. of fun, and, Great and game. Madden, and you know, there's quite a few other uh, really good games. My, you know, one of my personal favorites was uh, that really adorable little uh, war game. Uh, Return Fire. Return Fire, yeah. Return Fire maybe is my all-time favorite 3D game. Fantastic. Of course, FIFA was a great game. Eventually, there was some vindication just demonstrating that, yeah, this is a good system and there's a lot of good games for it. And it was a, a riot. If you got you know six people together to play FIFA, that was a hell of a party. I mean, that was kind of like the Wii before the Wii. Yeah. Who came up with the concept of daisy-chaining your controllers together? I'm sure that idea had to have been Dave Needles. You know, I loved you know, it. Uh, maybe maybe R.J. Michael, but you know, it sounds like I don't remember where that first uh, came from. Obviously, uh, I would have been talking from day one about wanting there to be multiple joysticks. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who would say, "Oh, let's daisy chain them." <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, uh, fantastic games. I mean, came you have to remember back in 1982, Mule was a four-player game. Oh, right, right. And I, I have always, always, always been a fan of social gaming and have always had a preference for multiple people playing a game at the same time and really having it be a social medium. It's one thing I gloss over, I forgot to touch on. Of course, EA had their own four-player adapter for the Genesis. Yeah, that was a tough sell, uh, getting that four-player thing to work and getting people interested. I, I think the Sega Genesis was great because it was such a effortless two-player machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. EA had some fantastic games for release on the 3DO. 1994, I remember saying that there will never be a football game that looks more realistic than Madden uh, <laughs> on the 3DO. And the nice thing about it was it wasn't named Madden 95, and of course there were no sequels, unfortunately, for that. But uh, So you mentioned some of your favorites. Some of my favorite games, I think, were definitely Twisted. Now, was that... Yeah, well, because that, that was uh, another one of my uh, personal projects. In a way, what I was trying to do with Twisted was make something uh, akin to Mule that would be much easier for a family to play together. You know, again, with Mule, I was interested in having four people play together. But in hindsight, you know, Mule is a gamer's game. Mm-hmm. And it requires uh, gamer skill and, and you know understanding of gameplay depth uh, to to really follow what's going on in Mule and really get into it. And it's kind of an abstract theme that you know a lot of people never really grasped. By contrast, with Twisted, we were, I was thinking, hey, let let's make a multiplayer game that anybody can play together. I mean, it was truly casual game thinking. You know, a decade before casual gaming became a term in the industry, and I wanted it to mimic a TV show and use simple puzzle solving and simple trivia and you know, have that kind of TV show theme. So, again, that was a case where uh, I was very heavily involved as, I guess you could call me the uh, originator of the game or the executive producer, and that was one of the reasons I hired Noah was to uh, you know, complete the execution of that game. Oh, that's fantastic, because that, that seriously is probably one of my favorite game show games uh, ever created. I mean, that and Joker's Wild, but... And I think it holds up. It I, does. I, you, could play, you could play Twisted right now and not tell your family members or the kids playing it that it's on an old piece of hardware. Yep. And they would think, hey, this is really great. You know, and, and they said, hey, what system is that? And they go, uh, they'd probably guess it was on the Nintendo Wii. <laughs> <laughs> and it could be, I guess, uh, once again. Hey, resurrect that, because I would like to see that. I also liked uh, Battle Sport. I thought that was a very interesting game that I, I think I yeah. can still play as well. Right. And, of course, uh, that was obviously inspired by uh, the old vector graphic uh, tank game from Atari. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The 3DO name. Is it 3DO or 3D0? 
So it's three D O. So the letter O. And okay. I'll take I'll take credit for the O because I basically said, look, I want to uh, you know, there's audio, video, Nintendo. Ah. Uh, there, there are many other examples of successful media formats that end in the letter O and the O sound. Uh huh. And I came up with some ideas uh, of what the prefix could be, but there's a guy named Rick Tom Payne who suggested three D as the prefix. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, okay, so it's 3D and then, and then the O ending sound. And how about yeah. the symbol, the the diamond, the sword? Yeah, we, actually hired a, we hired a designer in San Francisco who had done a lot of good early design work for Apple and for EA. And uh, basically I told him I was looking for something similar to the uh, three fundamental shapes that we had come up with for EA. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I really like that EA design that had the uh, scan lines going through it. In yep. fact, the, the guys that developed that, the, their, their view of it was, look, this is going to show up on a lot of TVs, and this is digital, <laughs> and this is kind of showing the idea of projecting the digital graphics on a video display and having scan lines uh, running through it, but having a three-dimensional quality. And the very first version of that at EA was drawn in such a way that the 3D aspect of the three shapes really stood out. Mm-hmm. And ironically, over the years, some of those details got trimmed out of it, and it started to look more flat. Yeah. And then at some point in the last decade, EA decided to dump it overboard and, and go with different iconography. Sure. I just still have a very strong emotional attachment to that very first version, and I, I miss it terribly. Yeah, I just really like the elegance of, uh, of that idea. We were shooting for something along those lines with uh, 3DO, and you know, the, uh, this designer uh, came up with those ideas. And if you think about the pieces of it, they were trying to get graphics that could actually, in fact, represent the 3, the D, and the O. So you got the number three, and then you've got a shape that looks like a TV screen, mm-hmm. and then you've got a three-dimensional object forcing uh, the the idea of three dimensions, oh, and gotcha. it's obviously an O shape, and then there's a shadow drawn underneath it to convey the idea of the extra realism of the platform. Of course, I think it's ironic when you look back on it. I'd say it's a, perhaps an overly complicated icon. And ironically, uh, it was fairly quickly surpassed in graphics power by products like the PlayStation. I love the 3DO. I still think it's a great platform. Can you tell us more about your ideas for getting this thing online? I have to say, uh, what really kicked that off is that I was working with Bob Pittman at the time. And Bob was the founder of MTV and had gone on to uh, have a great career with uh, Time Warner. And... He was on the board at EA. I got him involved with the 3DO project, and he ended up joining the 3DO board, and Time Warner became a strategic investor. And he was pushing me with the idea that the 3DO should be a set-top box for cable TV and to take advantage of uh, digital media in the living room. And you want to talk about ideas that are ahead of their time. <laughs> Again, that was pretty far out there because here we are years later, and we still don't really have a cable set-top box standard that has a lot of video game capability, right. but there, but it should be, right? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to see how this is all going to play out, because now you have products in the family room at home, like the Wii, battling with the PlayStation, battling with the cable set-top box, battling with other products like Apple TV, mm-hmm. and you even have the mobile phones in that same room, right? Sure. And some people are using their mobile phone to actually control some of their consumer electronics, et cetera. 
it's interesting that that's still a competitive question and there's still a lot of evolution because wouldn't it be nice if in your family room you had one box that really could do it all? Right now it's a real mumbo-jumbo still. Mm -hmm. I hope that we never get to that single one-stop shop, but uh, definitely uh, an amalgam of at least two or three competing companies I think would be good for me as a consumer. Yeah, you know, I'm not trying to push for there to be a monopoly or anything like that. Sure. I'm just looking at it from the point of view of the user experience. Oh, definitely. Ever since I first saw a computer, I realized that a lot of technical people don't understand that the public needs to have something be much simpler to use. And, and of course, for, for a long time, we had that reference point of the flashing 12 on the VCR. <laughs> and every product that has any memory in it, always there are too many features that people never understand, and they're trying to cram features into whatever the memory footprint allows. And, sure. And this is a problem with uh, every piece of consumer electronics, uh, every handheld device, every game, etc. And I, I just think that it's far more important to try to figure out how to make these things be so simple and straightforward to use that they become part of the everyday life experience that every human being has. Gotcha. gotcha. And that, that means they have to be less expensive, and it means that they have to be a really straightforward user experience. And I agree, and I think that systems like the Wii with their virtual console, uh, you could be playing your Wii games, you could be playing your GameCube games, and then you dump out into the virtual console and you're playing your old school, your 8-bit, your 16-bit, your VIC-20, whatever else they have on there, arcade games, WiiWare games, and it's all in one place. It makes a gaming experience a lot easier for the consumer. I really admire both uh, Nintendo and Apple for what they've done in the last five years because these are companies that look like they were painted into a corner and it's very very difficult and, and history illustrates how hard it has been for large companies to innovate mm -hmm. and the uh, innovation that came out of both of those companies and the impact that they both had in the game industry by using technology to promote social experiences and improving the user experience so that, it's, so that it's something that is more popular with a wider range of members of the public. I mean, it, it's just of incredible value. Yeah, when, when people ask me, well, why do you want to pay for a ROM of an old Genesis game when you own the old Genesis game or you own the old Turbo Graphics? And I said, well, if I could put it in my virtual console and it's all legit and I'm there, I'm playing games and I could jump out of there and play some some of my older titles and it's all you know people are still getting their loot and that's that's all good and so i can see that happening little bits and we're we're heading in those directions but uh i mean i've been an adopter of the xbmc now this is more on the the underground gray area of an independent joint development by communities of programmers that wanted something like that to happen and it is a it is more of an interface to i could do radio i could do television i can do some of my uh, video games and things like this all in one easy to operate interface but not easy to set up <laughs> not for the consumer yeah, exactly. you know exactly. so but uh, let's move on to where you saw i don't know how you thought it is you go from gigantic to something that could have been even more monumental big 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 you're going up big and then to the small. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an exciting uh, thing going on in the last 10 years that so much electronics power can be a device you can hold in your hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm obviously not the only person who thought it would be interesting to, to bring games to uh, mobile phones, etc. But I do have a history of kind of being out on the leading edge of new media and, you know, and in trying to figure out uh, well, what what can this new medium do, and how does it distinguish itself from other media? And I recognized uh, very early that the mobile phone was really the social computer, 
and that in the long run it was going to be a lot more than just a uh, voice device. And it's quite gratifying just to see the uh, evolution of the industry over the last uh, several years. I mean, obviously, uh, Japan, 10 years ago, Docomo introduced the first computerized phone, uh, also known as a data phone, and started to have spectacular success. But phone companies in the Western world did not really copy the business principles of Docomo. Right. And they kind of got lost in the weeds there for a while. And it, and it took something like the iPhone to come in to remind people of some of the principles that had worked with Docomo. And of course, Apple combined that with a very nice uh, device with a very nice uh, user experience. And what we're now experiencing in the West is the explosion of the mobile web, where a lot of the principles of the web that we've seen explode in broadband at a PC, you know, where you've, you've uh, had these innovative new companies like Google and Facebook and MySpace and YouTube, et cetera, and you've seen all this growth and all this new behavior by consumers around the web. That's very much the way it is in Japan and also in Korea, because in Korea they did copy what happened in Japan. But in the West, it would remain kind of bottled up, Mm-hmm. And, you know, things hadn't really uh, moved forward. And, and then the iPhone kind of came in as a very disruptive influence that has stimulated and motivated a lot of change in the West. So we're, we're now at this tipping point where there are going to be a few more billion devices like iPhones sold in the Western world in the next three, four years. And it's going to be a very different place where a lot of the behavior you now see on the web will shift over to uh, mobile devices. And it's nice to see Digital Chocolate, your new company, has a head start on some of the other uh, companies. And for me, of course, as a consumer, I'm looking more at the quality of the titles. You've had some years to get them together. And one of my favorite titles, which I mentioned on last show, and I'm glad that you're making it into the Xbox Arcade and whatnot, is one of the very innovative, fun action puzzle titles, the Tower Blocks. Even though it has two X's at the end, I still like this game. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is that even before the iPhone, we were enamored of uh, certain ideas about what we thought would make a great mobile game. And we, we thought, well, our slogan is, seize the minute. Yes. We know that the people that are mobile, they're, they're busy, they've got these little slices of time. They want to do something that occupies them and is fun, but they also are maybe trying to connect with other people. And so we, we kind of already understood principles of uh, social media, we understood that a product uh, should be really simple to learn how to play, that, that, that there should be a short play session, that you want to have basically one-touch operation. So we were already building great game mechanics to go with that because, of course, if you don't have a lot of computing power in a mobile phone, say, four or five years ago, you have to have a great game mechanic, and it has to be really well-polished because you don't have a lot of graphics, you don't have a lot of sound. So that's where great games like Tower Blocks were forged, and, you know, we also became a legitimate technology company. We realized that in the long run, uh, we would be much better at making consistent, high-quality games and getting them on a lot more uh, devices and platforms if we leveraged a technology model the same way that a company like Pixar has done in the film business. So we think of ourselves as the Pixar of mobile games. And it's been very gratifying as we've moved to more platforms in the last couple of years. Uh, we've had a lot of success on the iPhone. We've had a lot of success on the web. And now uh, Tower Blocks is, uh, is on uh, the Xbox Live. And I, I think that just demonstrates that games like Tower Blocks or Roller Coaster Rush or Crazy Penguin Catapult, these are all products that have ranked number one on the Apple App Store that had been around for a while. 
on older mobile phones, and yet they had, they adapted really well to the iPhone and have been very popular and are obviously great game mechanics, even for an advanced technology product like the Xbox. I also noticed they all can tie in with social networking, and I also like the fact that you have the demos, or as they're called in the, the App Store, free versions for your iPhone title so you can try those out. That's right. And, of course, uh, you know, similarly, Towerblox uh, was a big hit on Facebook. And you know, that's really kind of the next frontier for us is to evolve uh, as a supplier of social games. And Towerblox has some social features on Facebook, but we don't consider it to be a complete social game. The industry trend for social games is that, yes, they need to be able to leverage platforms like Facebook, and they need to have a lot of social plumbing but to really be an effective social game from a commercial standpoint, you've got to motivate players to get to a level of engagement where they're spending money. Mm. <laughs> and you know, the key there is to have a gameplay style where there are virtual items and virtual mm-hmm. currencies and customers are trying to enhance their competitive position as well as their style and their status in the social world of the game. Tireblocks was not designed with that in mind. Sure. So we're now uh, building a a bunch of new social games that are specifically designed as social games for platforms like Facebook. In fact, we're about to uh, launch the first couple of those. Fantastic. And I'm really happy as well that Tower Blocks, uh, on my iPhone, I was expecting like a flash version, a flat, very flat version on my iPhone, but it actually had some well-done 3D in it. And I think you can look at any, any platform and you, you have to figure out, well, what does it do well? Mm-hmm. And recognize that you can make a great game with any kind of technology if you match it up correctly. And I just took my family a few days ago to see the Disney film, The Princess and the Frog. Mm-hmm. And that's a somewhat more conventional-looking cell animation film, and it's a great movie. And it just kind of underscores the fact that you don't have to be doing all digital animation and swooping around with a lot of 3D special effects to make a great animated film. In fact, I had also taken my family to see Disney's A Christmas Carol a couple of weeks ago, and it was terrible. Oh, okay, good to know. <laughs> and that was, a, that was a movie in 3D, and you had to wear the 3D glasses, and they kind of forgot about the story in the process of uh, having you fly around the city and you know see all the spectacular uh, visual effects. Yeah, that, that's kind of the way we look at it, is that uh, Towerblocks, actually, there's a, there's a 2D version, there's a 3D version, and you can get into arguments with people about which one is better. But we certainly feel in both cases that, same with Roller Coaster Rush, there are 2D and 3D versions. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. We think the 3D versions are great for what they are. We think the 2D versions are great for what they are. Very good. And you know what it really brought to mind? I'd love to see uh, Gritters brought over to the iPhone. I don't know who came up with the Gritters uh, for the 3DO. That was one of my other favorite titles as well. That's funny. I I don't remember that one that one. Uh, Tetragon. Tetragon, I think. Okay. I think it goes for like $300 or something on eBay because it was... uh, Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) And in fact... I I think there was a lot of good original thinking Mm. in the past in the game industry. And uh, game developers are are smart when they fish around in the past to to see what was done previously that can be updated or, or reinvented. 
Definitely. And I, in fact, I think that there was a demo disc, you know, as 3DO used to uh, put out some demo sure. discs. Uh, right. And I, I own three magazine. Every now and then I go back and look at my three magazine for uh, the 3DO enthusiasts. And I think that demo disc is even worth like $100 or something just because it has a few levels of this Gritters. Um, well, see, when, you know, when, you, when you have a platform that fails, it means that there are fewer copies of <laughs> things I, around. So that must enhance their value as collectibles. That's kind of ironic. Yes. Yeah, it's it's sad that it all comes too late. What's new for the future? So you mentioned that. Anything else that you could talk about? Or yeah, is... well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing with, what we're doing with social games. That mm-hmm. It's called MMA Pro Fighter. It's a mixed martial arts game that is kind of in the style of, I guess you could say it's a little bit like Pokemon Stadium, where you're basically developing your fighter, and you get to decide what they look like, kind of like an avatar. But then you have all these different uh, styles of fighting that you can learn and train in. And you have a coach that's giving you advice on training techniques and how to build up your stamina and then also different moves that you can learn. And then uh, you're basically able to play with your friends or with uh, other people on the uh, leaderboard and basically build up the one-loss record of your fighter and enhance him in a variety of ways with different accessories and, and rankings and so on. And it's a very, very simple, fun game. I've been, I've been playing it here as we're uh, kind of debugging and getting uh, ready for the launch. And it's, uh, you know, it's kind of exciting because mixed martial arts is a, it's a new area of sports that's gaining in popularity, but there haven't really been uh, many video games about it. Especially nothing like that where you got to catch them all, catch them all the holds. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just building on the Pokemon uh, reference, a uh, bigger project uh, that I'm much more uh, personally up to my elbows in is this thing called the Nanostars. You might have uh, read about it. I gave a keynote speech a couple months ago where I introduced this idea. It's an old idea of mine that's been around for a long time and has not yet been brought to market in any commercial form. But basically the idea is uh, why not have a virtual item that has more personality and character to it, like a Pokemon, you know, instead of it just being a lifeless object like a gun or a sword. And why not have that virtual item that has all that personality be able to go into more than one game and turn into more than one thing in the context of those different games or apps. The idea of Nanostars is a little bit like Pokemon for grown-ups in that these are characters that have a lot of uh, humor and pathos and cultural references that will be appealing to older customers while also still being fun for kids. So I, I suppose you could say it has the sensibility of something like Shrek and its ability to appeal to all ages. And then from a gameplay standpoint, this idea for me was originally inspired by the trading card games like uh, Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. Sure. So one of the first games in this uh, platform is called Nanoverse Castles. And these Nanostar characters, uh, they're basically uh, from a parallel universe that's the size of nanotechnology. And we call that the Nanoverse. This first game called uh, Nanoverse Castles basically is a, a trading card game for the rest of us. And I, I don't know about you, but I've played all the trading card games and found them all to be kind of Byzantine and arbitrarily complicated. Indeed. And quite a few of them, in my opinion, didn't develop a good backstory and didn't really do a good job of breathing emotional life into the cards or the characters. And a lot of them just didn't even have characters. Definitely. And I, I always uh, admired the way Pokemon 
had a great story and fantastic characters, and you cared much more about uh, the uh, the games as a result. But then there again, even you know, in that case, the card game uh, was not that good, in my opinion. And again, I'm just looking for something that's uh, social and looking for something that can be enjoyed by everybody. I've spent a lifetime as a gamer where I've wanted to play with other people, and I've wanted to play games that. I enjoyed for their sophistication, but they had to be games that were accessible to my friends and family members that maybe didn't want to get into it as deep as me. And that's always a challenge, I think, for uh, serious gamers. And you saw a lot of serious gamers ended up getting a Nintendo Wii or Guitar Hero because they had to dumb down their game experience in order to get more of their friends to play, mm. right? Sure. So that's kind of how I think about social gaming, is, is that if you're somebody that enjoyed playing a trading card game at any time in your past, then here's a trading card game that you're going to enjoy, and you're going to develop sophisticated strategies in how you play it. But it is a brain-dead simple game to learn how to play, and pretty much anybody that you know, anybody that's a friend or a family member, you can teach them how to play this game in about three minutes. Wow. And then it just kind of grows in layers of sophistication. And if you're the kind of player that wants to know about that and wants to exploit it, you'll be all over it. But for a kid or, or for a more casual gamer, they don't have to, to do that in order to have a good time. And it's, a, and it's kind of leveraging people's familiarity with conventional card decks. So when you play Nanoverse Castles, you basically have a castle, and your opponent has a castle. And you're each dealt four cards from a regular 52-card deck. And then on your turn, you get to draw a new card. And what you're trying to do is improve the scores of those four cards. So the perfect score for you would be four kings. Gotcha. And then the nano stars are kind of like extra wild cards or special effects or power-ups or modifiers, depending on what lingo you want to use. Mm -hmm. And you can draw those from the deck that you created from your nanostars and play those to have an effect on your castle or your opponent's castle. And it only takes about five or six minutes to play a game. So you can play oh. several games in succession or you can play just one game if that's all you have time for. Wow, I, I already understand already. and I still can't understand magic. That's, I mean, I can look at those instructions again and again and again. I still have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. So, again, I'm, what I'm trying to do here, it's, it's not unlike what I've tried to do my entire career, and I was trying to do it back with games like Twisted and Neil before that. It's, it's that principle that I've always had of great games being simple, hot, and deep. Mm-hmm. If mm. they're if they're simple enough to get into, then anybody can give them a try. And if and if they're hot, that means something happens that engages people. And then for the uh, serious gamer, the hardcore gamer, there's depth, and they can go deeper. But not everybody has to. And I've actually always personally enjoyed games that have a certain amount of luck involved because when you have people of different abilities playing, mm. sure, I'm going to enjoy it when I execute my skills and strategies. And when I win the game, I'm going to pat myself on the back and say, yeah, hey, uh, I really use my skills. On the other hand, if I lose, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, I had bad luck. <laughs> sure, right, right. <laughs> and if you think about it, if you're playing against a friend who, so let's just say that they're much less skilled than you are, in order to engage them, the luck is important to allow them to win occasionally and get sure. some positive reinforcement. Otherwise, they're going to feel like every time they play, they're likely to lose, and then they're going to want to stop playing. So this is just a very important thing that's got to be baked into it. We think this Nanoverse Castles game has that, and uh, I have not been this intimately involved in game design since Madden. Wow. 
That's great. This one's very much my baby. There are, Fantastic. There are times when I'm working on this thing where uh, I get scared to death of making decisions because <laughs> at a personal level, you know that you're going to make a decision that's either going to help make people like it or hate it. So I'm, I'm very much uh, up to my elbows in it right now. Well, I think those three principles that you outlined, I think, boy, you can't lose with that. In fact, even if you hit two of those three, I think you got a hit on your hands. That's, well, again, the concept here is to is go beyond one game. So I talked about the trading card mm. style game. That's the first game to help kind of establish the idea of these collectible nanostars. But we have a tower defense game in development that's going to use them. We have a uh, series of other games that will we'll also use them. So we'll have a variety of different games in different genres. Uh, that are compatible with the Nanostar system. That sounds amazing. And you know, what the customer only has to buy a Nanostar once, then basically they can use it in all the games as the games become available. Gotcha, gotcha. Trip Hawkins, thank you very much for joining us on We Talk Games. It's been an incredible pleasure. I hope that you join us again in the future, and I guess I'll see you in the Nanoverse. And I hope uh, everybody has had some happy holidays. Right on. Thanks, pal. Okay. Bye. God bless. Bye. It was such an honor to have Trip on the show. You know, I, I mentioned about the unique box art. But yeah, but you forgot something that's a <laughs> huge part of the EA history, the culture of what EA was. I know, I know, the yellow tabs. No talk about the yellow tabs. How could you forget? <laughs> well, he threw me a curveball when he said Zany Golf worked on the modern Genesis systems because it only worked on the ones that said 16-bit graphics on the older style giant flat uh, boogie board genesises genesize is that what they would be called i'm not sure sure it, so that threw me a curveball and then I, I you know i went into packaging and he riffed on that for a while and then i just forgot to go back to the tabs well but, despite that that was a great interview so much good stuff sure maybe we'll have him on for he can talk about the yellow tabs yeah that, it will just feature the yellow tabs and that's it really just talk about the tabs. <laughs> well, he did mention why the packaging was different, and and you know he, he, it feeds into the same concept. Yeah, really. it was all alluded to. It was a gimmick. Use your and imagination. Yeah. yeah, use your imagination. That's why I picked up Shaq Fu. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for joining us again for another interview, Starcade. If you like what you hear, be sure to stop by wetalkgames.com. Be part of that social community and listen to the full episodes where we rip out these special interviews. Subscribe! Yeah, it's quite easy and it's all free. Yes. And the breakout bonus level mini-sodes are just... Oh, they're stacking up. They're extra fun. Yeah. See you in two weeks, everybody. Bye. Bye.